Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, March 12, 2010. Friday light. I don't know what's gotten into me. It's, this is like a record now of how many times I've done Friday Light on Fridays. Maybe I should stop marveling about it. Maybe I finally learned how to do radio. Maybe I'm becoming a veteran broadcaster. <laughs> no, that's not happening. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, goal of which is to help you to think biblically, to help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. And talk about crazy things. A lot of things, are, crazy things are said in the name of eschatology. Eschatology does not start, by the way, with the letter S. It's an E first. Anyway, just want to talk a little bit about eschatology. Now, Dr. Kim Riddlebarger, uh, who is an amillennialist. I don't know if those of you who are familiar with amillennialism thinking, what, there's no millennium? No, that's not exactly what that means. Um, historically, the church has been amillennial in its leanings. Okay, it's That's just kind of historical fact. Uh, Dr. Riddlebarger, is, he's kind of an expert when it comes to uh, looking at eschatology in light of kind of a different way of interpreting things uh, with this understanding that the book of Revelation is not a timeline. It's, it's, it, it's, that's kind of the wrong, wrong way to read it. But anyways, he's written some fascinating books on like the man of lawlessness and, and like a primer uh, or, or some would say a primer on amillennialism. Worth listening to, by the way. But uh, today, what we're going to do is we're going to begin a, a little mini-series on the end of the world. And we're going to, you know, he just did, what, 20 weeks on uh, on on the to- on this topic about amillennialism. And we're going to just kind of pick up the last few ones, okay? And uh, we're going we're gonna to begin with the signs of the end. Dr. Riddlebarger talking about the signs of the end of the world or the signs of the coming eschaton of the parousia, the coming presence of Jesus Christ, the great, glorious, and dreadful day of our Lord's coming in wrath to judge the living and the dead. So uh, it sounds all exciting. But uh, I thought this would be a really good counterpoint to a lot of kind of the goofy stuff that's being kicked around by the, you know, the left behind crowd. Anyway, so here is uh, Dr. Kim Riddlebarger on part one on signs of the end, signs of the end. Next week, 
There'll be signs of the end, including the Antichrist. <clears throat> Worth listening to. Here we go. Here's Dr. Riddlebarger. We're resuming our series on Amillennialism 101, and we have come to that point in our study where we're discussing the signs of the end. So, signs of Harold Camping. Uh, we are talking about the future, and we are talking about things we expect to happen. And therefore, this is as close as I ever get to thinking about future things and talking about what is yet to come. So I say that by way of caveat at the beginning. Um, there are three very important areas to consider when you talk about the signs of the end in general. Now, they're broken down, uh, as I argue, in three uh, categories in the New Testament. The first is those signs which are specific to the apostolic era. These are the signs that Jesus discusses with the apostles. These are the signs that Jesus expects to, uh, that the apostles expect to see occur in their lifetimes. The second group are those signs that characterize the entire interadvental period. These are signs that run all the way from the days of Jesus and the disciples all the way through to the second coming. Third, we have those signs that herald the end of the age. These are the signs of things which occur immediately before the end. These are the signs of the Lord's return. Now, related to this discussion is an important conversation. Imminence versus delay. Um, and we'll talk about that in a minute, how difficult it is to argue that Christ could come back at any moment versus the New Testament teaching that give us signs that precede his coming. What's that all about? Can we say Christ can come back right now? And if not, why not? And what do we mean when we speak of the uh, imminent return of Jesus Christ? So there are a lot of, a lot of issues here. And then I want to uh, tackle what specifically does the Bible predict for the future? And then finally, what I call unrealized eschatology, and that is uh, areas of Bible prophecy that people are looking for things to happen but have no biblical foundation whatsoever, like a seven-year tribulation period and uh, that kind of thing. So that's where we're going to go. So let's start with those signs that are specific to the apostolic age, the first of these uh, three categories of signs. Now, remember when Jesus was with his disciples on the Mount of Olives, he's giving them what is probably the most complete discourse in all the Bible about what they can expect. And they, of course, come to him and they ask him questions. Uh, Master, what is the sign of your coming? What are the signs of the end of the age? Uh, tell us, how is this all going to unfold? And so, as Jesus is enumerating a number of these signs, he says to the apostles, um, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. When Jesus says this generation, he is referring to the generation to whom he's speaking. He's speaking to the twelve. Now, we'll talk more about this uh, in coming weeks, but in my uh, collection of prophecy goodies, I have uh, a whole section of, of definitions of this generation. So back when I first started reading about Bible prophecy, I read How Lindsay's Late Great Planet Earth, which came out in 1969. I read it in the early 70s. It was the first theology book I ever read on my own. And Lindsay would make the case that a generation was 33 years. 
And since Israel became a nation in 1948, at 33 to 48, and you get... But you're all looking like 33. <laughs> what? Add 33 years to 1948. And you get 1981. So the idea is, if Israel's back in the land, and Jesus isn't really speaking to the 12, but he's speaking to that generation living when the fig tree blooms, Israel at the end of the age, then the Lord must come back, theoretically, by 1981. Well, we get past 1981, the Lord hasn't come back Now, all of a sudden, a generation is 40 years. And so you add 40 to 1948, and you get 1988. 1988 comes and goes, and the Lord hasn't come back. How long is a generation now? Well, some say it's 50 years. Some say it's 70 years. Add 70 to 1948, and you get... Now you're really... I can see all the number crunching going on. Well, that's the only way you can make that work if you're a dispensationalist. It's rather interesting to see how many uh, times they've tried to define this generation and, and, and tie it to national Israel. Well, no, Jesus is speaking to the twelve. This generation living will not pass away until these things are fulfilled. What are these things? Well, these are the signs that Jesus says are specific to the apostolic age. What do you mean? Well, Jesus tells the disciples that there'll be false prophets and don't follow them. There'll be persecution of the disciples and they'll be arrested. So the first group of signs in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, verses 9 through 14, and the parallels in Mark 13 and Luke 21, Jesus tells the disciples there are going to be false prophets and you are going to be arrested, and you are going to be persecuted. Those are things directly to the twelve. The second thing he tells us to look for in Luke 19 is when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies. Uh, I believe the Olivet Discourse, as Jesus gives it, is predictive prophecy. I don't think the Gospels are written after AD 70, and Jesus' words are read back into uh, his mouth as though they were predicting prophecy. I think Jesus is is predicting this in about 19 about the 30 A.D. and that these things did in fact come to pass exactly as he said they would. And one of the things he warns the disciples about is when you see Jerusalem surrounded by. Of course, anyone who knows anything about Roman military tactics knows the way the Roman army works in a fortified position. The Romans surround it. They cut off the water sources. They cut off the roads. So no water gets in. No food gets in. And then if the town is still actively defending itself, they put up a siege wall. And then they build a ramp. And they build a ramp high enough to where it actually crests the wall, the strong defenses, and they go through uh, that way. So the Romans, Jesus is warning, look, when you see Jerusalem come to Roman siege, uh, that is a sign you will see in your lifetime. And, of course, that's exactly what happens in AD 70 uh, when the Romans uh, finally sacked Jerusalem. Jesus also speaks specifically to the disciples that they'll see the destruction of the city and the temple in AD 70. That's the question the disciples put to Jesus in Matthew chapter 24. They're up on the Mount of Olives. If you've ever been to Israel and Jerusalem, you have a great view from the Mount of Olives looking down on the Temple Mount. Um, 
The Mount of Olives is just across the Kidron Valley. It's, you know, what, a half mile or so. You can look right down on the Temple Mount. It's a great view from there. And you can just see Jesus and the disciples in this garden of Gethsemane up on the Mount of Olives with these young olive trees, and they're sitting there talking. And they say, look at that magnificent temple. Didn't you say the temple was going to be destroyed? Of course, Jesus did, and he was referring to his body. Kill me in three days, I'll be raised from the dead. Then he goes on to explain how that that temple is going to be destroyed, and it'll be the greatest time, the, the, the most horrific time in the history of the city of Jerusalem. Now, when we get to the Olivet Discourse, we're going to spend a fair bit of time going through Matthew chapter 24. I'm going to argue that much of that, that passage refers to the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. And Jesus is effectively telling them the temple is going to be destroyed. And not one stone is going to be left standing upon another. So when the disciples hear that, their next question is, oh, this must be the end of the age. It would be the equivalent to us of saying, of sitting in the Capitol Mall in Washington, D.C., and having somebody tell us that the Capitol Washington Monument, the White House, are all going to be destroyed. We would think that we've been invaded and the Republic must have fallen. If those, things, if those things are destroyed, the nation must be conquered. Well, that's exactly what the disciples say to Jesus, because they take his prediction of the destruction of the temple to mean that he's speaking about the end of the age. And as we'll see when we get to Matthew chapter 24, Jesus telegraphs the end of the age ahead in AD 70, the temple is destroyed, Jerusalem is sacked, but the second coming is not yet. The second coming comes at the end of the age. So we'll go through that in some detail when we get to Matthew chapter 24. But that is a sign Jesus gives to the disciples. Jerusalem's going to be destroyed and the temple's going to be destroyed. Now, that is the greatest calamity to ever happen in all of redemptive history. There will be nothing greater than the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. Now, dispensations, of course, say, well, no, no, we're talking about something at the time of the end, the Battle of Armageddon or the Russian invasion of Israel from Ezekiel 38-39. No, but think of this from the, 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 the context of redemptive history. The destruction of the temple says what to a Jew? It, yeah. Yeah, that Yahweh has turned on them. Instead of protecting the temple, Yahweh has allowed the temple to be destroyed. Jerusalem to fall under the hands of, of the Romans. And then the fourth sign Jesus gives to the disciples is they're going to be dispersed. Israel is going to be dispersed to the ends of the earth. That tragic prayer in Matthew chapter 23 where Jesus says, Oh, I long to gather you together as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not the desolation that will come upon you. So all of that together is a sign tied to the apostolic age. The disciples are going to witness the Romans surround the city like an anaconda and cut it off and choke it. And the zealots are going to fight. And if you want to read about this, Josephus has an incredibly graphic account of the Romans invading the city and the defenders turning on each other and fighting among themselves making temporary truces to fight the Romans, uh, cannibalism going on, people eating uh, corpses because there's no food, there's nothing left in the city. It's just a horrific, horrific picture that Josephus just, uh, recounts there. And so I take Matthew 24 to be speaking of the greatest calamity ever to come upon Israel in its entire history. 
become one Jerusalem in its entire history. So, those are signs that are specific to the apostolic age. When you see this, this generation will not pass away until all of these things are in fact fulfilled. And we know that that happened in AD 70. Now, there are another series of signs that we believe characterize the entire period between Christ's messianic ministry in the Gospels and the Second Coming. That there's a series of events to look for that are going to characterize the entire period between Christ's first coming and his second coming. These are the birth pains of the age to come. And I think it's helpful to realize that Jesus speaks of these signs using a metaphor, birth pains, that gives some explanation as to how these signs can be present and how his coming can also be imminent. Um, Birth pains are intense. They're followed by brief periods of quiet and rest. And as labor gets close to the birth pains intensify, so there's kind of a cyclical thing going on, so you never really know if this contraction is going to lead to the actual birth or if this contraction is going to be followed by a brief respite. So Jesus himself speaks of this as in terms of birth pains. And he speaks in the Olivet Discourse of a number of things. He says there'll be false Christ. He mentions this twice. He warns the disciples of them facing false Christ. And as we'll see when we go through Matthew chapter 24 in great detail, he speaks of false Christ as characteristic of this entire interadvental period. There are going to be false teachers who will come and who will claim to be the Messiah. And I think that's what John is referring to in his first epistle when he speaks of many antichrists having already come. I think this, both John and Jesus speak of people arising in the apostolic period teaching false gospels, attracting followers unto themselves, proclaiming to be the Messiah or to have some kind of insight into the Messianic kingdom and so on, and that that's going to characterize the entire interadvental period. There are going to be false Christs and antichrists from the time of Jesus all the way up until the second coming. Now, the question we're going to talk about next time is, do the series of antichrists culminate in an antichrist? And I think that they do, so we'll talk about that next week. But throughout this period, there are things that will go on, and I think it's important to list them because you'll you'll see why the prophecy pundits can open the Bible and and find these things, and yet we'll see where the prophecy pundits miss the mark. First is false Christ. Second, wars and rumors of wars. Jesus speaks of this in Matthew chapter 24, verses 3 through 8. Wars and rumors of wars. Jesus doesn't predict a specific war. So, cynical me, when I go to my Christian bookstore and there's some current event in the Middle East, I am amazed at how quickly Christian publishers can throw new cover art in an old book and say, ah, here you go. My favorite is John Walvoord's book, Arabs, Oil in the Middle East, which was published, I think, back in the late 60s, early 70s. Uh, It ran through, I don't know how many printings, was a pretty good seller. Lo and behold, Gulf Storm, Desert Storm. And Saddam Hussein rises to power. That book comes out now with new cover art, updated weaponry, picture of Saddam. You know, it just they just keep cranking this out every time there's a there's a new uh, event in in the Middle East. The, the the hook that dispensationalists hook that prophecy pundits. I'm not going to say all dispensationalists do this because they don't, but the prophecy pundits do. The hook they have is there are wars, there are rumors of wars. The Bible said there would be. 
but it doesn't predict a specific war. It says this is going to be the pattern. The same thing holds true with earthquakes and famine. Um, the prophecy pundits will point to any kind of an earthquake swarm, any kind of, a, for example, the tsunami, any change in the climate, and they'll say, see, Jesus told us before the end there's going to be famine and earthquakes. Well, yeah, there will be. And they'll be cyclical throughout the entire course of history. There are going to be times of great distress. There are going to be times where the earth shakes beneath, beneath our feet, followed by times of great harvest and times when the San Andreas Fault stays put. Uh, that's what we should expect, this alternating uh, period of, of upheaval. Now, Jesus isn't the only one who speaks of signs of the end that characterize the entire interadvental period. Uh, Paul does this in 2 Timothy. In 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 to 5, and let's read these because I'm not going to come back and cover this passage as I will, Matthew chapter 24. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, Timothy is speaking of godlessness in the last days. In the first five verses, he writes the following. But understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. Now, we're going to see that the time words, like last days, refer to the entire interadvental period. The last days are not just limited to the time right before Christ comes back, but the entire interadvental period from Christ's first coming to his second coming are the last days. And in the last days, be tough times, people be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. So Paul's making it very clear that this is going to go on throughout the entire period until Christ comes back. The church needs to be aware, young pastor Timothy needs to be aware, that this is the context in which he's going to minister. So, uh, Timothy is warned of this. Paul speaks to it directly. And then, at the end of the chapter, in verses 12 through 17, of chapter 3 of 2 Timothy, uh, Paul speaks of persecution. He says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it. And then, of course, he goes on to speak of Scripture being breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, reproof for correction, training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. So, there are going to be wars and rumors of wars, false Christs, uh, there are going to be earthquakes, famine, um, and persecution throughout the entire interadvental period. Now, there's a third group of signs which herald the end of the age. These are the ones that people are most interested in when you talk about eschatology because these are the ones that tell us that the second coming is near. And there are some things that the Bible mentions that have to happen before Christ comes back in more specific and predictive uh, ways 
than the general signs of the interadvental period. And I think this will be pretty clear when uh, we mention them. The first one of these is found in Matthew 24 in the Olivet Discourse, verse 14. And there, Jesus says that the gospel must first be preached to all the world. I'm going to read that passage because I think it's, it bears uh, reading it in its entirety. And this gospel of the kingdom, which Jesus has been talking about previously, will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So, I think that's pretty clear. That, that kind of a sign is one that we can, I think, get a little bit of concrete reality attached to it. The gospel has to be preached to the ends of the earth before the Lord returns. Now, I don't think this passage is referring to TBN's satellite, as uh, Jan Crouch seems to think. Um, but I do think it's very clear that the missionary enterprise has to succeed before the Lord returns. Now, this is one of those kind of in-house disputes between amillenarians and post-millenarians. I think the gospel is going to be preached to the ends of the earth, to all the nations before the Lord returns. I don't think necessarily that all the nations are going to believe the gospel before Christ returns. And I think the language here, preaching the gospel as a testimony to them, implies not only blessing for those who believe, but also curse for those who do not. So the gospel has to be preached to the ends of the earth before the Lord returns. We'll talk more about this momentarily, but obviously this is one that, from God's perspective, he certainly will know it's hard for me to believe that there's a place on the earth that the gospel hasn't gone yet to the, to the nation. So um, that will factor when we talk about imminence versus delay. A second sign, Romans chapter 11. So turn there to Romans chapter 11. This is a discussion we will uh, take up again in some detail in the coming weeks. But... In Romans chapter 9 through 11, the Apostle Paul is dealing with this question of what happens in the future course of redemptive history regarding the nation of Israel. And Paul makes a distinction between all Israel and not all Israel. True Israel, not all Israel, is the believing remnant. When Paul writes Romans, there's a believing remnant, an elect remnant according to grace, and Paul argues that the fact that that remnant exists and that Paul himself was a Jew and part of that remnant guarantees, I'm going to argue, the conversion of Israel at the end of the age. And so as you go through this argument in Romans 9, 10, and then in Romans chapter 11, in Romans chapter 11, Paul takes up this, this botanical metaphor of the root. And the root, of course, is true Israel. And their natural branches, the natural branches are believing Jews, the wild branches grafted in are believing Gentiles. Natural branches are torn off, ethnic Jews who don't believe the gospel. And there Paul says, look, you Gentiles, don't get huffy. Don't get proud and boastful thinking that somehow God's done with Israel and you're wonderful so he grafted you in. 
The theme of that entire chapter is mercy. What if God wants to show his mercy to Israel again? He then grafts the natural branches back into the root. And I take that to mean that before the end of the age, the natural branches are going to be grafted back into the root, and Jews are going to become Christians and become members of Christ's church. And so you have this language in Romans chapter 11, the the summation of this, (coughs) where Paul says, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery. What is the mystery here? Well, it's the salvation of Israel at the end of the age. What is this mystery? A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So, I take Paul to mean that the general thrust of redemptive history is largely the salvation of Gentiles. And at some point before the end, the fullness of that Gentile harvest comes in, and at that point, God goes back to save all Israel. Now, again, remember back in the beginning of that passage, Romans 9, 6, Paul makes the distinction between all Israel and not all Israel. Not all Israel there is the elect remnant. All Israel in Romans 9, 6 is ethnic Jews, national Israel. So unless Paul changes the meaning of all Israel, here in this passage he's saying that all Israel, which is a remnant to the nation, is going to be saved. Now, I don't believe that all of a sudden every Jew is going to come to faith. The same way I don't believe that all of a sudden Gentiles can't be saved anymore. Okay, we're going to pause right there. Fascinating lecture. Eschatology is always an interesting topic to hear discussed, especially by like somebody like Dr. Kim Riddlebarger and somebody of his caliber. Okay, we have got to pay some bills. Now, if you'd like to email us regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> My name is Rex, and if you study with my eight-week program, you will learn a self-beater system that I developed over two seasons of preaching in the Octagon. It's called Rex Quan Do. I need a volunteer to come up here and show that they trust me. Um, here. Okay, you'll do. Come up here. Bow to your pastor. Bow to your pastor! Okay, now I'm gonna give you one chance. One chance, people. Turn around. Turn around. All right. 
Now fall back and I'll catch you. Ow. That was pretty good. Now, listen, everybody. The reason why he fell was because he didn't have enough faith. Go sit down. Okay. When I fall, I fall in slow motion every time. Now, in addition to what you just saw, if you study with my eight-week program, you're going to learn these things. First off, in Rex Kwando, we use the buddy system. No more reading the Bible solo. You need somebody watching your back at all times. Second off, you're going to learn to discipline your image. You think I got where I am today because I dress like Peter Pan here? Take a look at what I'm wearing, people. Bible pants. Yeah, you have to be pretty righteous to rock these babies. You think anybody wants a roundhouse kick to the face while I'm wearing these bad boys? Forget about it. Last off, my students will learn how to walk on water, heal babies, raise the dead, and be extreme. Now, for only one $300 seat offering, you can sign up right now for my eight-week program here at Guts Church. The spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner. And the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheapo Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website... PirateChristianRadio.com forward slash cheap. We have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit PirateChristianRadio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, click on the web banner, and book your spring or summer travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support. Sloppy eschatology cleaned up here on this program. <laughs> all right, need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you. Not only you, but also to the world. If you haven't partnered with us financially, it's probably time for you to do so. In fact, uh, you can do that a couple of ways. Visit our website, uh, fightingforthefaith.com. That's right. I say it like that. It just makes it easier. I'm sure. I'm certain of that. And uh, when you get there, you'll find two friendly yellow buttons. One says, join our crew. Joining our crew is a mere $6.95 a month. $6.95 a month. That's nothing. It's just pittance. It's a happy meal. It's It's a... It's a couple of cups of coffee at Starbucks, but it's the world to us because when we get to a thousand listeners, and we're about you know, 60% of the way there, when we get to a thousand listeners who've joined our Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew, uh, then, then that guarantees on a monthly basis that we're able to pay all of our bills. Paying all of our bills is a good thing because 
we want to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. So, And, of course, if you would like to fill in the blank as to how much you'd like to uh, contribute to our cause, you can click on the Donate button. That allows you to fill in uh, the amount that you would like to contribute. And, of course, you can always um, send in your contribution uh, the traditional way. Our, make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And it gets to hear that way. And uh, by the way, those of you who join the crew, you get access to our Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio Cove. That's uh, that's some good stuff there. But anyway, for the conti- well, let's continue with our Friday Light Edition now. Uh, more on eschatology from Dr. Kim Riddlebarger. Interesting, fascinating topic. But the general thrust of redemptive history will go from the salvation of Gentiles suddenly to the salvation of huge numbers of Jews. And I'll argue that in, in more detail when we get to Romans chapter 9 to 11. We'll spend a couple of nights going through that passage because I think it is one of the most important passages in the New Testament when it comes to eschatology. Uh, Theodore Beza argued this. Gerhardus Voss argued this. This is a long-standing uh, part of the Reformed tradition. I, just for the sake of <clears throat> clarification, this is a kind of the minority position among the Reformed now. There basically have been three views about all Israel. A number of reform writers have said it's the sum total of the bleeding remnant. Some have said this is the full number of the elect. When the last elect person comes in, Christ comes back, all Israel saved. That's John Calvin's position. And then there's the view that this refers to national Israel and that before the end of the age, we should expect God to save Israel again. Now, when we say that, we do not mean this is tied to the land promise. Because the land promise, we've already seen in Romans, Romans chapter 4, verse 13, the land promise has been extended from Palestine to the ends of the earth. So, the question we talked about prior, we talked about all Israel, it's the pink elephant in the room whenever all millenarians talk about eschatology. Israel's back in the land. What do you do with that? You just can't act like that's not going on. Well... I think that has a lot to do with the salvation of all Israel. But I don't think it has anything to do with the Abrahamic covenant. Because right now, Jews who don't believe in Jesus are not part of the Abrahamic covenant. That's Paul's argument in Romans 3.4.5 and Galatians 2.3.4. So, I would argue that one of the signs of the end then is going to be large numbers of Jews becoming Christians. And I'll talk about how that relates to imminence and delay here momentarily. A third sign that we find in the New Testament is the time of a great apostasy and the appearance of the man of sin. Turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And uh, just remind you all, I have spent a fair bit of time on this passage already. Um, the audio is posted on uh, my blog I did a, a six-part series on my book, The Man of Sin. And um, if you want to listen to that lecture, I have a whole lecture devoted to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And you can get it on the, uh, the blog. But briefly, listen to Paul's discussion of what he describes as the course of the age. Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, okay, so he's telegraphed this ahead to the time of the end, and are being gathered together with him, this is clearly the consummation, 
We ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit of spoken word or a letter seeming to come from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Some knucklehead in the churches is running around saying that the day of the Lord's already come. And the pastoral problem has been, everybody in the church knows Fred. Fred's a, Fred loves Jesus. Fred dies. What happens to Fred? Does Fred miss out on the second coming? If Jesus is coming back right away, don't you have to live, be alive when Christ comes back? And somebody had, had thoroughly um, confused the church by saying, well, if you die before the Lord comes back, tough for you. No, 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 the day of the Lord hasn't yet come. So, how do we know the day of the Lord hasn't yet come? Well, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion, the apostasy, comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, everywhere in Paul's writings, temple refers to the church. We are living stones of the temple, 1 Corinthians. Um, the, the temple is always a reference to the spiritual temple and dwelt by the Holy Spirit, the spiritual temple being built of living stones. This is not a reference to a temple in Jerusalem. Either standing when Paul writes this, and it still was standing when Paul writes Thessalonians, or to a temple at the time of the end, in which the Antichrist walks in and makes a peace treaty with Israel. Temple always refers to the church. Unless this be the only place in the New Testament where it doesn't. So, he takes his seat in the temple of God, the church, proclaiming himself to be God. What did Jesus warn us about? False Christs. What does John warn us about in his first epistle? Antichrists. It make perfect sense that someone in the church but blaspheme God by taking divine prerogatives into themselves. This is also what Roman emperors are doing. About uh, 40 A.D., Caligula had attempted to have his statue placed in the Jerusalem temple. Uh, Herod talked him out of it because it would have created... It was bad enough when uh, the Roman armies put their standards inside the city walls of Jerusalem that had um, Caesar Augustus... Uh, and portraying him as a divine figure. So, you know, Caligula and his statue are probably in the background here. But Paul's talking about the church and someone in the church uh, proclaiming themselves to be God. How do you know that this refers to the time of the end? Well, let's follow along here. We know that from verse 1, but Paul says, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. So something is preventing this from happening. This time of great apostasy, this time of the revelation of the Antichrist. I take this to be a parallel passage to Revelation chapter 20 in the binding of Satan. Something's holding back the forces of evil in the present age. What is it? Well, it's the preaching of the gospel, the providential purposes of God, uh, something like that. The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he's taken out of the way. Maybe this is a reference to the angel in the book of Revelation, which is also a strong possibility. And then when the restraint is lifted, and then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. So I think... Greg Beale is absolutely correct. 
that the restraint is lifted so that the apostasy occurs, so that a final man of sin, a final Antichrist appears, only to be destroyed at the second coming. So this seems to me to be a sign of the end, but a sign very close to the time of the end. And we'll talk more about this in next week. And as I mentioned, I've got six lectures on the blog already on this topic. So if you want to follow that in more detail, I've done that elsewhere. And then finally, in Revelation chapter 18, there is a picture of the harlot. And the harlot is the great city on seven hills. Hmm. What city might that be? Um, throughout the book of Revelation, Nero and the Roman Empire are everywhere. Uh, the book of Revelation is not only apocalyptic, and it has a series of repeating visions, kind of a cycles of human history, as Dr. Dennis Johnson so helpfully puts it. Each of these visions is like a different camera angle on the same thing. So if you're watching your favorite uh, NFL game, and you look in the truck where they're broadcasting the game, the producer, you'll have a camera that'll do the entire field, a wide-angle shot. You'll have isolated cameras that'll cover the backfield, the wide receivers and the defensive backs covering them. You'll have close-ups of the linemen. You'll have the aerial camera that you've got a little cable scooting along. And so each one of those cameras is looking at the same thing, but the perspective is so different, you would think you were watching different things. You had no, if you had just the one camera, you couldn't see the whole. Well, that's exactly what's going on in the book of Revelation. There's seven visions. Each vision is describing the same period of time, but from a different perspective. And so in Revelation chapter 20, the last part of that uh, book, we have a description of the second coming of Christ and the casting of Satan and the beast and the false prophet in the lake of fire. But earlier in Revelation 18, we have this description of the harlot Babylon. Now, we know that's the city of Rome because of the geography, but Babylon were always referred in Old Testament history to the evil empire in the east. It was always a threat, always a political power, always an economic threat. This time, the nations of the earth commit fornication with Babylon the Great. And that's obviously a symbol of the Roman Empire. It's tentacles everywhere, controlling the merchandising. Merchandise. Controlling the, the, the uh, trade, world trade. Um, its armies backing up its, its economic power and so on. Preventing people from buying and selling. Forcing people to use coinage that referred to Caesar as God. Forcing Christians to go in the marketplace and sacrifice in order to conduct business. And this is clearly the Roman Empire, and it clearly refers to this world system that controls the city of man. Augustine, in his book, City of God, of course, picks up on this, and Babylon is the city of man. I think Augustine's largely correct in his identification of this harlot Babylon as that world economic political system that opposes Christ and his kingdom. Why does it oppose Christ and his kingdom? Well, because... If you affirm that Christ is Lord, you're, you're saying by your affirmation that Jesus is Lord, that Caesar isn't. And Caesar doesn't like that. Caesar thinks he's Lord. And so this is this, it, it, although it's clearly a reference to Rome, Rome there, as does Nero, is a picture to us 
of this city of man that we're going to face as Christians throughout the course of the ages. This is always going to be there, but it's destroyed before or at the time of Christ's second coming. So those then are specific signs of the end. The gospel being preached to the ends of the earth, the salvation of all Israel, a time of great apostasy, and the revelation of the Antichrist, and then the fall of Babylon the Great. Those are very specific things we're told happened before the time of the end. All right, that raises a conundrum. And some of you have emailed me and asked me about this because many of you have heard me say that the Lord might return before we finish our study tonight. Yet you just said there's signs that have to precede his coming. So I think it's important to talk about this imminence versus delay. And let me flesh it out this way because I've I've thought more about this and and think we want to, certainly I want to come at this a bit differently to say basically the same thing and not not confuse people. There is clearly a tension in the New Testament by design between Jesus' words telling us, I can come back at any time, and exhortations to be watchful. And I think that's intentional. I don't think that's an an accident. I don't buy the um, tubing in school... uh, Bauer and Strauss and others trying to say that we have this Hegelian dialectic going on in the, in the church where we have the party of Luke uh, trying to cover up the differences between Peter and Paul. And this is a, an attempt to kind of smooth over some of the... It's nothing like that. Uh, we also don't have the kind of thing that um, Schweitzer tells us, that Jesus was an apocalyptic prophet that predicted the end, and Paul has to tell us why he doesn't come back. Uh, this isn't an accident of history. This is not the, the, the fruit of, of Jesus being a, a, a Galilean uh, apocalyptic prophet predict, making predictions that didn't come to pass. Rather, this is intentional. This is designed to do something. Well, what is that? It's very clear. Specific signs precede the end. Jesus tells us as much. We've just listed and spent a fair bit of time going through those signs. Yet Jesus also says in Matthew 24, verse 37, that the Lord can return at any moment. How do you resolve this? Well, a couple things. If the Lord is coming back at any time, he himself tells us that no one will know the day or the hour. And I jokingly will say that about the one time you can be sure that Christ isn't coming back is the date that Harold Camping predicts that he will come back. Um, Anybody who claims to know the day and the hour is just clearly deluded because Jesus says, you can't figure this out. So the tension between imminence and delay prevents date setting. It's impossible. That tension is set up so that we can't set dates and times. It also prevents the other human tendency, and that is idleness. If we knew the Lord was coming back in six weeks, what would we do until he came back? (laughs) You know, I think that's a a given human nature. I think it's very clear that Jesus does this so that we don't set dates. We don't know when he's coming back. We can't be idle because we have to keep watch. And, of course, we know that from the Olivet Discourse. And let's look look at that passage just briefly because I think it speaks to the point. Matthew 24 uh, 42 through 44. This is the uh, 
warning here at the end of the passage. Verse 36, Concerning the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only, as it was in the days of Noah, so that in the coming of the Son of Man, they were eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark. They're unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. There were signs, and yet the flood came suddenly. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken, one left. Two men will be grinding with the mill, one taken, one left. 42, therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have left his house, would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not expect it. So this is intentional. We can't set dates, nor can we sit on our behinds and wait. Luther got it right when Luther said, you know, what would you do if someone told you the Lord were coming back tomorrow? And he says, I'd plant an apple tree today. That's exactly why we have this attention found in the New Testament. Now, as far as imminence versus delay goes, I think it's helpful to clarify this in, in a couple of ways. The first thing we have to say is, this complex of events, like the gospel being preached to the ends of the earth, the salvation of all Israel, a time of great apostasy, the revelation of Antichrist, the fall of Babylon, those things may or may not yet have happened. To me, I don't see the salvation of all Israel. I haven't seen the great apostasy, although things aren't particularly hunky-dory in the American church, but who knows what the great apostasy actually will look like. I am saying these things could all come to pass relatively quickly in a matter of weeks or months. We've seen world events speed up to where, you know, all of a sudden we could see something happen in the geopolitical uh, arena that would draw Jews back to Christ. You can, you can look at World War II. Who would have thought that the, the lasting fruit of World War II was Israel back in the land of Palestine? You know, the fall of, of Nazi Germany the rise of the United States and Russia's superpowers, you know, all of that stuff. The lasting reality there is Israel's back in the land. The Balfour Declaration is realized, 1940. So if something could happen cataclysmic, and out of that would come very quickly the salvation of Israel, or an apostasy, or the revelation of a final antichrist. So while we may not see these things present, they could happen in months, certainly, relatively quickly. The second thing I think we'd want to say is that Gerhardus Voss was really right when he warned us in his book, Pauline Eschatology, that the best interpreter of some of these prophecies is their fulfillment. That they could be fulfilled in such a way that we wouldn't really realize it until it happens. And I think there's some wisdom in that, that we think we have this figured out, but we may not in the, in the exact precision we would like. And that, too, is not necessarily a bad thing because we know who is the Lord of history and where he's directing all things. And so I think Voss is right that, that some of these things will not know until they're fulfilled. And I think related to that is I think God's people are going to know when these things are being fulfilled. I don't think the great apostasy and the revelation of Antichrist is going to be something we're going to be, we're going to be sitting around thinking, now is this really it? I think it's going to be 
a universal persecution of the church that goes beyond anything we have yet seen. I think in the midst of that kind of persecution, which could begin relatively quickly, Christians will know that this has to be it because nothing like this has occurred before. And all of these complex of events are coming to pass relatively quickly. And in the midst of that, the Lord will return. I think that's the way we ought to, to take a look at that. Now, I'm not alone in thinking this, by the way. There was a, a famous Reformed theologian, R.B. Kuyper, K-U-I-P-E-R, who was a uh, professor of Calvin College, Calvin Seminary, and also a professor at Westminster Seminary. And these um, comments come from a book, As to Being Reformed, published by Erdman's back in 1926. And he says this, this is a quote, by the way, was sent to me by my friend, Reverend Danny Hyde, and it's rather remarkable, um, from Kuyper. There are those who are decidedly fanatic about Christ's second coming. They think of little else. Like the Thessalonians of Paul's day, they're so deeply absorbed in its consideration that they neglect their present duties. They want it spoken of in every sermon. Chuck Smith wasn't on the scene yet. Hal Lindsey wasn't on the scene yet. They want it spoken of in every sermon. They think they find reference to it in almost every verse of Scripture. Such should be admonished to be sober. Interesting. There are also those in reform circles who discourage and even disparage all study of future events. That is decidedly unbiblical. The New Testament is replete with exhortation to observe the signs of the times, to regard the word of prophecy, to look forward to the glorious coming of Christ. Does it not end with an announcement of this stupendous event and fervent prayer for its hastening? The consideration of Christ's coming should put a stamp on the life of every Christian, a stamp of holiness. Beloved, seeing that you look for such things, be diligent that you may be found in him in peace without spot and blameless. That's from R.B. Kuyper, Christian Reformed Church, as to being reformed in 1926. So I think that's exactly where imminence and delay leave us. Okay, good point. I'm going to pause right there. we got to go to our second break in order to finish paying some of our bills. Fascinating lecture. Interesting stuff. Good advice. Notice it's sober. And it leaves you kind of in that tension. Jesus could show up real soon, or he may not show up until, you know, you're long dead. Ah. <laughs> uh, Yes, that's the same tension that uh, Christ leaves us in here uh, and has left the church in since he ascended into heaven. Good. Well, that's where he wants us to be, and that's the place where we stay. All right, we're going to take our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We will be right back. did not die for your 401k. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the end. 
Of the sissy, frenzy, turning for the written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk to you about auto insurance. As the father of two teenage drivers, I know how expensive auto insurance can be. But as expensive as auto insurance is, it's nothing compared to the cost of not having it when you need it. That's why I'm excited to have Allstate Insurance as one of Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertisers. Did you know that drivers who switched to Allstate saved an average of $396 per year compared to what they were paying other companies? Now, I don't know about you, but I think $396 is a lot of money in these tough economic times. Why don't you give Allstate a call and see how much they can save you? You can reach them toll-free at 877-246-1511. Again, that's 877-246-1511. One five one one. The good folks at Allstate will be happy to give you a free quote over the phone. And remember, you're in good hands with Allstate. (laughs) The spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner. And the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheapo Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, click on the web banner, and book your spring or summer travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support. of our Friday line edition of Fighting for the Faith coming up shortly here. Fascinating lecture on eschatology. What I like about it is it focuses you on the text, focuses you on Christ, and leaves you in that tension of soon and yeah, not yet. Kind of an uncomfortable spot, and that's the spot where Christ, I think, wants us to be. All right, so without any further ado, here is the balance of uh, Kim Riddlebarger's lecture on the signs of the end. We can't be lazy. We need to be about the, the Lord's work. The Lord can come back at any time, and by that means this complex of events 
can get rolling very, very quickly. And when it happens, it's not going to be a matter of speculation or guessing. We're going to know because it's going to be a tremendous upheaval, tremendous persecution. Now, that brings us to, okay, you're all millennial. This is, this is as close as I'm ever going to get to predicting the future. And I'm not making a prediction. I'm not, I'm not, this is, I think, what we're to look for in light of what we've just talked about. What does the Bible tell us to look for in the future? Well, the first thing, the events associated with the founding of the church and the persecution of the apostles and the earliest Christians, that's clearly fulfilled. The destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, the diaspora in AD 70, that's clearly fulfilled. The continuing spread of Christianity to the ends of the earth, we all know from the opening chapter of Acts, as we know from the parable of the soils in Matthew 13, that was already underway at the close of the apostolic era. The signs that characterize the course of the interannual period are always ongoing. There are always wars and rumors of wars. There are always earthquakes and natural disasters. There are always false teachers. There's always some place in the globe where God's people are being persecuted even as we speak. And so the Bible then lays out this general pattern of birth pains that occurs throughout the entire inter-advental period, but it doesn't predict specific wars or specific earthquakes. It just says there are going to be wars and earthquakes. So the Bible may explain current events in that sense. We as Christians know why the nations are in upheaval. We know why they're natural disasters, but we can't use current events to interpret Scripture. We can't go to a particular war and say, ah, that's what the Bible is talking about here. Uh, the signs of the end do not allow us to do that. Now, we know, based on the first sign that heralds the end of the age, the gospel being preached to the ends of the earth, that's a condition. But can we say whether or not that has been accomplished? We probably could say that not all of the elect have been called to faith yet, but that could happen at any minute. If the gospel's gone to the ends of the earth, we don't know who the last elect believer yet to come to faith is. And when that happens, I think we would presume that that would be the time of the second coming. That could happen at any time. The conversion of Israel and the fullness of the Gentiles, well, that could be ongoing even as we speak. Uh, we were talking earlier about a generation and then what happened in 1948. Well, I think we're a little too precise here. We're demanding a kind of precision that I don't think the Scriptures intend to give us. Well, you say Christ can come back right now. You know, what about I, I think we're to live in that tension. I think that's intentional. That could be ongoing right now. We don't know what the purpose is of God. He's moving the chess pieces around. We, we're not quite sure what His purposes hold. And I think all of us could agree that could come to pass really quickly. A year from tonight, this could be on the brink of being fulfilled. Um, if that's the timing of God. So I don't think the conversion of Israel is full, but I think if I start to see it, I'll know the end is drawing near. That could happen relatively soon. And then the great apostasy within the church. Um, every age, I think, sees at some point in its life a time of great revival, another time of great... Uh, um, Seeming apostasy in the church or disinterest in the church. We see this ebb and flow all the time. Where at some point in the world there's, there's a wonderful work of God going on. And at other point in the world there's, there's disappointment 
and people are leaving the faith and so on. I, we've used Northern Europe as an example a couple of times. Uh, pagan, then Aryan, then Christian, then Reformation, then Enlightenment Protestantism, now secularism, and perhaps even Islamic in the future. I mean, we, we, we can't say. We're bound to time and space. But we could perceive of an apostasy. And that happening a year from tonight. That happening a month from tonight. We can, we can conceive of that. And we conceive of the revelation of a final Antichrist. And when I'm saying Antichrist, I'm not talking about um, the character from the Left Behind novels. Um, I forget the guy's name. The Romanian kid. that Nikolai. Nikolai Carpathia. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a state-sponsored persecution of the church. And you could conceive of this in a number of ways. It could be Islam. It could be even a secular state that God got so sick of religious infighting that it forbade all religious expression and insisted that people pay homage to the state. You could conceive of that happening in light of religious war. So there are a number of ways in which that could come to pass relatively quickly. And the same with the fall of Babylon the Great. We, we were witnessing an economic downturn in our own country. Um, and our own country may very well be Babylon. And may manifest a lot of the signs of Babylon. And it wouldn't take long for Babylon to go poof. We had a stock market crash in 1929. We're in the midst of a horrible recession now. You have a double-dip recession and a war, a terrorist act, and there it goes. So, when we talk about imminence, the Lord can come back soon. And it is possible for him to come tonight. Although I don't, the way I understand the science, I think he, I would prefer to say, and I'm going to start saying, he could come back very soon. And in a matter of months, all of these things could be in place and in play. So, I think that is... is much as I want to say, I don't want to say anything more than that, um, but I do think that these are really clear in Scripture and could come to fruition relatively quickly. All right, briefly, I want to, in the, in the few minutes we have left, I want to touch upon what I call unrealized eschatology. These are common eschatological expectations that have no biblical support, and I think we need to address them briefly. The first is our dispensational friends are still looking for a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. As a kid growing up in evangelicalism, I heard that they were working on the red, finding that perfect red heifer, or that DNA research would get us back to an, a, a priesthood. I remember hearing a Levitical priest. I remember hearing that there was a quarry in Indiana where they're cutting the marble stones to rebuild the temple. You know. Um, the earthly temple and its forerunner, the tabernacle, are copies of the heavenly archetype. Hebrews 9 and 10 tells us that. Biblical history, as we've seen, flows from type to anti-type, not the other way around. The earthly tabernacle, the earthly temple, were pictures to us. They're archetypes of the heavenly temple. The reality is the heavenly temple, not the earthly temple. Redemptive history is going forward, not backward. There is no need to rebuild the temple. And should it be rebuilt, it would be blasphemy because Jesus declares himself to be the true temple in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 12, 6, Matthew 26, 61, and in John chapter 2. 
Paul speaks of the church as the temple of God to point out that uh, the temple pointed forward to a spiritual temple, that temple being made of living stones. Now that's us. And if a temple were to be rebuilt in Jerusalem, it would be a scene of utter blasphemy. Because to go back to animal sacrifices is to deny on its face the gospel of Christ and sufficiency of the cross. To have the blood of bulls and goats shed again is not a good thing. It's blasphemy. So I don't know why we would be interested in a rebuilt temple. The other thing I don't think we're going to see is a seven-year tribulation period uh, where the Antichrist makes a peace treaty with Israel. Uh, The passage upon which dispensationalists base that entire seven-year tribulation theory is Daniel 9, verses 24 to 27, which doesn't teach a future seven-year tribulation. And we'll spend a fair bit of time on Daniel chapter 9 in the coming weeks. The 70th week of Daniel is fulfilled. It's a messianic prophecy. It's fulfilled by Christ's active and passive obedience. There's no reference in that passage to an antichrist making a treaty with Israel. There is a reference to Christ cutting a covenant on behalf of his people in the middle of the 70th week before he's cut off. Christ confirms his covenant with the many. It's a passage that talks about his death on the cross, not something the Antichrist is going to do. Furthermore, the book of Revelation takes the last half of the 70th week, that 1,260 days, the three and a half years, the time, times, and half a times, and describes the whole interadmental period as the last half of Daniel's 70th week. And in doing that, the biblical writers, specifically John, the book of Revelation, are doing the very thing dispensations tell us ought not to be done. It's John. Well, actually, it's the angel who's revealing this to John. It's the angel who now tells us that that last three and a half weeks of Daniel's final week, that seven-year period, the last half, is the entire interadmental period. So we'll spend some time on that when we get to Daniel chapter 9. Again, that's a large problem for our dispensational friends. And then finally, there is no seven-year tribulation period affirmed anywhere in the New Testament. It's not there. Rather, the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 is spoken of at the time of great tribulation, as is the entire interadvental period. We find this in Matthew 24, 29, John 16, verse 33, uh, Acts 14, verse 22, Romans 8, verse 35, and Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. Uh, the whole interadvental period is spoken of as a time of tribulation and a time of suffering for God's people. And then, a great tribulation is mentioned in Revelation 7.14. Let's take a look at that passage. Um, Revelation 7.14. This is the great multitude. No man can number them. From every nation, tribe, tongue, language, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches. And crying out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Down to verse 14. The elders, who are these clothed? I said, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white by the blood of the Lamb. The great tribulation in that passage is the interadvental period. These are the martyrs. They come out of the great tribulation. So the New Testament never speaks of a seven-year tribulation. The New Testament speaks of the time between Christ's first coming and his second coming 
That entire period is a time of tribulation. This is a time of the church militant, the church on the earth struggling against the forces of unbelief. So those two very common expectations of a seven-year tribulation, the rebuilding of the temple and so on, are signs that people are looking for when in fact they're missing, I think, the signs that are clearly, clearly given in Scripture. The gospel being preached to the ends of the earth, the salvation of all Israel, a time of great apostasy and the revelation of the Antichrist and the fall of Babylon. Those are the signs that when they are all present, the end is near. And those things could all be present very, very quickly. Any questions? Anybody brave enough to go to the mic and ask a question? I realize uh, dispensationalism is sort of retreating and, and changing, but um, can you give your opinion of uh, historic or classic premillennialism that seems to be on? Yeah, on these that's, that's a very good. That's a very good question. Uh, progressive dispensationalism, uh, George Ladd's historic premillennialism—that uh, position doesn't have the problem of the dispensational hermeneutic, the seven-year tribulation the expectation of rebuilt temple and so on. So historic premillennialism and amillennialism can be very similar until the second coming of Christ when they look for an earthly millennium. So, you know, again, the arguments there against historic premillennial go back to the fact that if you're historic premillennial, you have to explain, A, how people get to the second coming without being judged, when Christ comes back at the end of this age, how do people get through that second coming in natural bodies? They can't. If they get back, if they live on the earth in glorified bodies, then at the end of the thousand years, what happens? They revolt against Christ. So I think the premillenarian, a historic premillenarian, is on the real horns of a dilemma here because dispensationalists, remember, have the rapture. So the Gentiles are taken off. They come back with Christ and repopulate the earth. Or people who are still living, people who come to faith in the tribulation period, repopulate the earth. Well, that's not a possibility. So if you're a historic pre-mill, you have a real problem. You have to get people through the second coming without being raised from the dead. And if you have people raised from the dead, then they revolt against Christ. So my gripe with the story pre-mill progressive dispensationalism really has to do with what happens after Christ comes back. And to be perfectly honest, that's far less of a concern to me than what happens before Christ comes back. And I think our dispensational friends see this in a, in a very wrong-headed way. Good, important question. Yes, sir. Uh, my question is concerning uh, the Antichrist, the final yeah. Antichrist. From what I understand, he's going to carry out uh, a terrible persecution and should we look for him or him to be part of a church government single kingdom system let's be general inclusive she the antichrist she's going to know um dr muller at fuller during our phd seminars fuller was going through the gender inclusive language so he always referred to the devil as she and her which is not well received back in those days. Um, I take the Antichrist to be, and we'll talk about this in, in great detail next week, I take this to be, at the time of the end, state-sponsored heresy. 
where the state is mandating that Christians believe something contrary to the gospel that denies the deity of Christ, and the state ascribes to itself and to its leader attributes that belong only to God. The image given to us in the book of Revelation are deified Roman emperors who ascribe to themselves divine attributes, speak of themselves as God, build temples to their ancestors, and deify them along with the other gods the Romans worship in their pantheon of gods. So I take this to be at the time of the end, after the restrainer ceases the restraint, after the gospel, providence of God, whatever it is, after the Lord providentially allows this to happen, there is a time of great apostasy. We know that in the Roman Empire, um, we have concrete examples of this where Christians were so threatened by the sword and by the horrible things the Romans could do to them that they would renounce their faith and make sacrifices to the gods and to the emperor. The mark of the beast is, is clearly uh, a reference to the state's leader and Christians affirming allegiance to him. It's a denial of baptism, I would argue, in effect. Um, and so I think that would be the apostasy, would parallel what we see in the Roman Empire in the first, second, third centuries. Um, and then the state and or its leader would, uh, in, effect, in effect, force Christians to attempt to worship the state or its leader and use the full power of the sword and the purse to accomplish that. Um, if you read the letter of Pliny the Younger to a patient uh, uh, describing the, um, what to do about Christians, and you have the emperor saying, well, don't hunt them down, but if they won't worship, then arrest them. And Pliny the Younger says, yes, they're already, uh, Trajan rather, they're already, they're already people who have done this. And once we arrested them, they were willing to um, sacrifice to the gods and we readmitted them back to ordinary life. That's exactly what's going on with the mark of the beast. And that, I think, is what we'll see at the time of the end. Now, our dispensational friends here are worried that this is tied to universal product code 666 on a, on a you know, tag on something or, you know, a microchip in a person's ear or whatever. I don't think we need to fear the technology, but I, I do think we can concede that technology would make this a far easier thing for the state to control the economic power and therefore prevent people from buying and selling. So, and and I, think of this historically. We see this with Rome. We see this today in Islamic countries. Uh, we saw this with Muslim conquest of Christian nations, forcing Christians to pay uh, tribute or worship Allah or die. We, we've, we've seen that, renounce Christ and proclaim that Muhammad was uh, Allah's God, Muhammad was the prophet. We've seen this in history, so look at it in those ways, and you can easily see what might happen quickly at the time of the end. We'll talk more next week. You stole my thunder from my next lecture. Yeah. Hi, Jim. I had a question about language. Uh, when you're talking about the end uh, and then the judgment or and then the end, is the end then a phrase indicating immediately after? Yeah, that's, that's a really insightful question. Time, language in the New Testament, and then the end seems to me 
that the complex of events associated with the end occur, and that would be the resurrection, the judgment, and the cosmic renewal. Now, some Christians fall all over themselves because they want to know how many days and hours that's going to take. Well, and then doesn't even imply that. It just tells us that when these things happen, the end comes. What is the end? It's the judgment, the resurrection, and the second coming. And we're not going to be able to get our arms around that until it happens. So I think we need to be, when I, when I say I'm cautious about precision, I think there's a tendency to want to have the mechanics of this figured out, especially with the imminence and delay. You know, and I, I know from the number of people that have written me and the number of questions I get about this when I, I lecture, I'm, gonna, I'm going to stop saying that the Lord can come back before we finish. I'm going to start saying the Lord can come back soon. And I'm also going to caution people at the same time to say, let's be careful when we talk about imminence. This could come on us very quickly. That doesn't mean in 24 hours or that it could happen between now and the time I get home. But in weeks, months, or years, all of these signs could be present. And we would, at that point, be saying, is this it? And I think we would all, I think the nature of the signs are going to be such that we'll know this is it. We're not going to know exactly when the Lord will come and rescue us, but we know that he will. So, And then means these things are, are about to happen. But I think we want to also say that doesn't allow us then to try and figure out the number of hours and how long it's going to take God to judge everybody and you know, I think that misses the whole point. Follow-up question. On uh, Babylon the Great, yeah. uh, you said it could be America, possibly. Well, what? I think the image is to the Roman Empire. That's what I'm confused. Is like... But remember, Rome is a picture to us of what Babylon the Great is going to be throughout the course of the centuries. Uh, this thing continues on. You want to know what it's going to be like? Look at Rome. Uh, where, where in order to conduct commerce, you have to honor Caesar as God. And you could very easily see in Islamic countries, you could very easily see it in a secular state, you could very easily see it in an apostate Christian state, that you had to pay homage to the state or its leader in order to conduct. And that seems to me what the, the whole Babylonian imagery is of this eastern city that's seductive, that it attracts people. To be really specific, where we would see this in the United States is with a Nike swoosh, uh, the worship of celebrities, the rank materialism. I think that that is, I think, are pretty concrete pictures of what we're, we're warned about. That whole, uh, we're spending our time and our money and our energy on something that's illusory. So, good questions. Well, let's close in prayer. Our gracious God and Father, we are thankful that you have been pleased to give us signs of the end. And you've been pleased to give us attention between the imminent return of our Lord and the signs that precede his coming. And so, Lord, we do not wish to set dates. We do not wish to pry into mysteries that we are not allowed to grasp. But we do wish to pray, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We do wish to see the end come. We do wish to see our Lord return. We do long for that day when every tear will be wiped from our eyes, when all pain and suffering and our own sin cease. And so, Father, we long for that day, that blessed hope, because we know on that day we shall finally be like Him. 
For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Great lecture. Good ending, too. We'll have a little bit of more of that next week as he uh, gets into a full-blown discussion about the Antichrist. Be very interesting to listen to. All right. We're rapidly approaching the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. And I need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. And that means we depend upon your generous gifts and contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. And when you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says, join our crew. The other says, donate. If you click on the join our crew button, it's a mere $6.95 a month to join our crew. It comes out of your account automatically after you set everything up. And after you join, you get access to our pirate cove. A growing treasure trove of theological resources designed to help you go deeper in God's word, Christ-centered theology, apologetics, stuff like that. Good, good, good stuff. And, of course, if you'd like to uh, fill in the blank as to how much you'd like to contribute to our cause, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, and you can send in your contribution securely online there, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. So what'd you think? We'd love to get your feedback. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or follow me on Twitter. My name is Pirate Christian. Until next time, next week, may God richly bless you in the grace and the mercy won by Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Ah, that's the best news ever. Amen. Amen.